All right, well, good morning, church. Listen, for those of you who don't know me, my name is uh, Will Franco, and I'm one of the teaching pastors here at the church, and it's such a blessing to be with you here this morning. And uh, this morning, we're going to do things just a little bit differently, and here's why. Uh, For those of you who've been here for the past couple weeks, you know that we've been in a series entitled The Upside Down Kingdom. And what we've been doing in this series is we have been going verse by verse, section by section, through the Sermon on the Mount, right? And so that's what we've been doing week by week, and that's why we all have those booklets. But this morning, we're going to do things a little bit different. What we're going to do is we're going to call pause. We're going to just call a timeout. We're going to press pause on the series that we're doing. And what we want to do this morning is we want to address the subject of community, of community. Now, the reason why you might be asking, wait, why are we stopping the series that we're doing? Why are we addressing the subject of community? Well, the reason why we are addressing community is because this is something that we actually do. Every year right around this time, we address the subject of community. And the reason why we do that is because community is a part of our mission. It's part of our vision. It's a part of our values. And so this morning, we are addressing the subject of community because my goal this morning is to help you. Essentially, there's two purposes for my sermon this morning. The first goal, the first purpose is that people who are not in community, who are not in life group, that today might be the day that you decide to join a life group, to join Rooted, which is our path into life groups. That's my first goal. My second goal this morning is to talk to the people who are already in community. So maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're already in community and you're like, well, check, this has nothing to do with me. I don't have to worry about this at all because I'm already in community. But here's the thing. What we're going to see this morning as we go through the passage that we're looking at is that biblical community is actually a lot different than what a lot of us think. And so even if you're in community, my goal this morning is to teach you what biblical, biblical community actually looks like. And so as I preach, I want you to be evaluating the community that you're in, and I want you to be asking yourself, does my community actually look like this? So those are my two goals. The people who are not in community to get into community, and the people who are in community already to to evaluate how they are doing in that community, okay? So this morning, the passage that we are looking at is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. If you're new to the whole Bible thing, I want you to turn to the end of your Bible and go left, and you will eventually hit the book of Hebrews, okay? It's closer to the end than it is to the beginning. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And if you don't have a Bible, the passage is going to be here on the screen behind me. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Here's what it says. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have what? Oh, wow. Okay, so people are sleeping. I thought this is the later service, right? You guys still, okay. Since we have what? To enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more, 
as you see the day approaching. It's the word of the Lord. Now, this morning, what we're going to do is we are going to look at this passage under three heads. There are three truths, three principles that I feel we can learn from this passage. The first truth that we're going to learn this morning is we are going to learn about our need for community. We are going to look at the need for community. The second truth that we're going to learn this morning is we are going to see the marks of community. The marks of community. And then thirdly, the third and final thing we're going to learn this morning is we are going to have and look at the source of community, okay? So the need for it, the marks of it, and the source of it, all right? So let's begin by looking at the need for community. Look what it says in verse 25. In verse 25 of this passage, here's what the author of Hebrews says. He says, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. So this doesn't look like a command. But actually, in the Greek, it's a command. He is commanding us to do something. He is saying, I want you to make sure that you do not give up meeting together. I need you to make sure that you do not forsake meeting together. That's what the word there means, to give up. It means to forsake, to abandon. I need you to make sure you are in community. And so the question is, why does the author of Hebrews feel the need to command us to be in community? Actually, it's the same reason why a lot of us parents constantly repeat things to our kids. When you are constantly repeating a command to your children, there's two reasons why you are repeating the command, okay? The first reason is because they need it, right? It's for their good. So you're asking them to do it because they need it. It's for their good. But the second reason, catch this, is because they neglect it. They neglect it, right? Because if they didn't neglect it, if they did it, you wouldn't have to tell them. So whenever we command our kids to do something, it's because it's something they need and it's because it's something they are prone to neglect. And the same two reasons why we do that with our kids, he does this with us. He needs to command command us to, to be in community because our tendency is to forget the need and as a result to neglect, neglect it, okay? So, so let's look at both of those, our need and our neglect. The first thing we see in this passage is that there is a need for community. And there's actually evidence of this all over Scripture, not just in Scripture, but even in our world. We have been created by God to be in community. Well, how do I know that? Well, in the book of Genesis, right at the beginning of the book of Genesis, God creates all things. And after every day, God says, this is good. And it was good. And it was good. The first thing that God says is not good is that Adam is alone. Now, 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 mind you, mind you, sin hasn't entered the world yet, and yet God has found something that's not good. He sees Adam and he's like, okay, okay, th- there's something missing here. Now, Adam wasn't alone, right? He had, he had the hippos and the butterflies and the seahorses and the koalas. He clearly wasn't alone. It was like Rainforest Cafe in that joint, right? So, so clearly the man wasn't alone. But he says he is alone because he does not have a partner. He does not have someone to come alongside him. And so God sees this. He says this is not good. And what he does is he puts Adam to sleep. He takes a rib and he creates Eve. Right? Now think about this. This this almost seems heretical when I first say this. But God creates Adam in such a way that there is something that Adam needs that God cannot give him. That's how he creates him. God creates Adam in such a way that there is something that Adam actually needs that God cannot provide. 
But as heretical as that seems, that's exactly what the passage is telling us. He looks at Adam and says, look, everything is perfect, and yet there is something that you are missing. And there's a biblical counselor. His name is Dr. Larry Crabb. And look how he describes this, this need for community. He says, community matters. That's about like saying oxygen matters. As our lungs require air, so our souls require only what community provides. We were designed to live in relationship. Without it, we die. It's that simple. So, so what we see is that we need to be in community. And, and we know that because there's biblical evidence for that, right? But here's the thing. There's not only biblical evidence for this, there's actually scientific evidence that proves that you and I are built for community. Earlier this week, one of our staff members emailed me this document, this article on community. And the beginning of the article had a bunch of, of headlines from, from major newspapers and magazines. And all these headlines had to do with the concept of loneliness and relationship. Look at some of the headlines that were on this list. It says, Surgeon General says there is a loneliness epidemic, the Washington Post, the surprising effects of loneliness on health, the New York Times. Young people report more loneliness than the elderly, USA Today. The biggest threat facing middle-aged men isn't smoking or obesity, it's loneliness, the Boston Globe. So what we see is that there's not just biblical evidence for our need for community, but there's actually scientific evidence that proves our need for community. So here, here's the question that we have to ask that. If biblical community is so needed, if community is so needed, if we are created for it, why are we so prone to neglect it? If it's such a clear need, why are we so prone to neglect it? I think there's actually two reasons why we are prone to neglect it. The first reason is our significance, and the second reason is our security. Our significance and our security. Listen, the first reason why we are prone to neglect community is our significance. One of the things that happens in the book of Genesis after God creates everything, right? In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin against God. They eat from the fruit they're not supposed to eat. And almost immediately, the Bible tells us that they start to see their nakedness. They feel exposed. They feel weak. They feel vulnerable. And so what they start to do almost immediately is they start to cover themselves up. And what do they use? They use fig leaves. They use fig leaves. The first underwear line was created in the garden. The original fruit of the loom was in the garden. They sew fig leaves together in order to cover up their nakedness. Why? Because now they are struggling with significance. They don't have any value in and of themselves. They, they feel like no one knows them, loves them, embraces them. All the community that they had with the Father and with one another has been ripped away. And so now what they do is they sew fig leaves together in order to try to cover up their vulnerability, their nakedness, their wickedness, their sinfulness, right? Now, here's the thing. One of the things we can do is we can judge Adam and Eve, right? We, we can judge them, and we can look at them and say, look at these primitive people. Especially if you're someone here who doesn't really believe the Bible. You're like, this is a make-believe story. None of this ever actually happened. Really, there was people who, who, who ran away from God and there was a serpent. A talk. Really, this is, this is a thing, right? So you might be sitting here and, and at, at, at best, you're judging them, right? At worst, you're disbelieving the whole story altogether. Like, who, who, who does this? How primitive can you be? 
Here's the thing, though. It's very easy for us to, to judge Adam and Eve for the fig leaves that, that they sewed together, right? Because they actually had physical fig leaves that they used. The reality, though, is that fig leaves today are very much alive and well. And every single person in here, if you have a pulse, has a fig leaf. Actually, fig leaves, plural. Okay? Because ever since the garden, we have been trying to cover ourselves up. We feel our inadequacy. We feel our vulnerability. We feel our nakedness. And so what we do is we try to cover it up. One of the books I read last year, the author said that the multi-billion dollar clothing industry and multi-billion dollar makeup industry are all a result of Genesis 3. So Satan has profited, right? We, we all have fig leaves. So let me give you some examples of fig leaves. Maybe you don't have actual fig leaves like Adam and Eve did, but some of us what you have is maybe you have a academic fig leaves. So maybe you're a high school student or a middle school, middle school student or maybe you're a college student. And what you do is you, you're convinced that as long as you get good grades, as long as you have a good GPA, as long as you have scholarships, you are successful, you are good, you are acceptable. So for some of us, it's academic. For some of us, it's financial. You, you, everything, you've been driven to get money your whole life. But deep down, the reason why you so desperately need money, you think you own money, but money actually owns you. And as long as your bank account is full, then you're okay. It says in the book of Proverbs that for the rich man, their wealth is a strong tower. In other words, if you're wealthy, one of the temptations that you have is to have your wealth be where you go, not Jesus. And so one of the, the fig leaves you can have when you are a wealthy person is your wealth. I hide behind the things I buy, the houses I own, the clothes I wear. No one knows about my nakedness because I have gone out of my way to cover it with my wealth, with my wealth. Another fig leaf, and this is a big one in our day, is romantic fig leaves. See, what we do is we, we, we look for in other people what can only be found in Jesus. And so we know that we're naked. We know that we're exposed. We know that we're vulnerable and sinful. So what we do is we go to people and we, we just need to be loved. We need to be accepted. There are some of you who are either single right now or maybe when you were single, there was never a moment in your single life where you were actually single. Like you always needed to have someone next to you pursuing you, someone that liked you. Because if someone didn't like you and embrace you and pursue you, you were nothing. And you think, oh, I'm married now. I don't have that problem. No, you still do. You're just finding it in your spouse. Or if your spouse is not good enough, you're finding it in someone outside of your marriage trying to find it in them. There's romantic fig leaves. And you know what? A big one. This will be the last one I give you, even though there's several others. There's, it's religious fig leaves. Religious fig leaves are probably the worst ones. So, so, so we, we go to church and, 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 we, and we, we lift our hands and we put money in the plate and, and, we, and we're in a small group and we're like, well, I'm good. Everything is great. And, and so what we do is we come to church and we act like we have everything together. The reality is that your life is falling apart, but you're wearing a mask because this is your church mask. And then that's your work mask. And then that's your family mask. And you just, there's a different mask for every place you go. You're like a traveling roadshow. And so every time there's a new stage, you, you, you pop up the stage and, hey, hey, here I am. So we all have fig leaves. Every single one of us has fig leaves. Okay. Here's what's interesting about fig leaves, though. In Matthew chapter 21, there's a very fascinating passage. Jesus is walking down the road, and he sees a fig tree 
the passage says. He walks up to the fig tree. He sees that there's no fruit on the fig tree, and Jesus curses the fig tree. I remember reading that story thinking, what's up with Jesus, man? Like, why would he be so cruel to that fig tree? Leave the fig tree alone, bro. Like, what did it do to you, right? But here's what's interesting about fig trees that I didn't know. Here's how fig trees work. And in, in the, the, what's unique about fig trees is that the leaves and the fruit grow at the same time. That's how fig trees grow. So if you walk up to a fig tree that has leaves but doesn't have fruit, it's never going to have fruit because the leaves and the fruit grow at the same time. So Jesus walks up to the fig tree, he sees that there's no fruit, and he curses it because it's all leaves and no fruit. Here's my question for you. If Jesus were to walk into your life, if Jesus were to walk into your Christian community, what would he see? If, if I'm guessing, what, I would, what he'd probably see is all leaves and no fruit. It's all leaves. There's no fruit. You know what Jesus does with those? He curses them. Okay? So the first thing we see is that, that, that even though we have a need for it, the first reason why we neglect community is because we are looking for significance. We are scared to be known because we, we, we want to be fully known and fully loved, but we don't believe that's possible. So I'd rather be not known and loved. In Jesus, we can be fully known and fully loved, right? But, but, but we don't actually believe that's possible horizontally. So we're just like, I'd rather be not known and kind of loved but not known. I'd rather you love the person you think I am than the person I actually am. Okay? So the first thing that keeps us from community is, is significance. The second thing that keeps us from community, though, it's security. It's control. Here's the, thing about, here's the thing about community. Community is messy, right? Face-to-face interaction is messy. It's spontaneous. You don't know how it's going to go. And one of the things that has happened to us in our culture is we have become so accustomed to text messaging and email and Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and whatever the new thing that just came out yesterday is. We're so accustomed to that. Okay, that, that what happens is we, we, are, we, are, we, are, we are accustomed to having total control over every interaction we have. And so whenever we post a photo on Facebook, we take 17 selfies, and then we post the one, the one selfie that has the right light, the right filter, and makes you look like someone that you're not. Right? I'm preaching to somebody right now, okay? Check your heart, dude. Check your heart. So anyways, here's the thing. So, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. So, so I, I, even in my family, some of the best family photos we've ever taken have been on the worst days we've ever had. Like, like we're sitting there and we're bickering and yelling and, and yelling. Every, everyone's mad at each other. And they're like, say cheese. And we're like, hey, dude. <laughs> right? And we put the photo up. They're like, what a beautiful family. You guys are so great. And I'm like, oh, thank you. I know. Yeah, we're awesome. <laughs> okay? That's the thing. That's how we are. So, so the lack of security is scary. We don't know what to do when there's a face-to-face interaction. I had, being a, a, a high school pastor and a, and, a, and a college pastor for about 10 years, I saw that there were, many of my teenagers, they were like Shakespeare when it came to text messages. They were like, writing sonnets and stuff. And then you get, to, you get in front of the same person and you're like, hey, man, what's your name? Oh, 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 I'm like, do you speak English? Like, what's going on right now? Like, come on, man. See, that, that's the issue. That's the problem. 
That's, that's just the world we live in. And so security is one of the reasons why we don't want that. And here's the thing. I've always been an extrovert. Like, I'm a very, very extreme extrovert. Like, my favorite time of the week is the church foyer, the church lobby. I love the church lobby. Like, I wish my whole life was just a big church lobby where I'm meeting people and connecting with people, right? My wife is very introverted. She's not a big church lobby person. So I can go for about four hours, and she can go for about five minutes, right? And, and, and so what starts to happen is after a while, right, she, 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 she's done giving me grace. But when I talk to people, I'm so focused on them. My eyes are so locked in on them that there's no way for her to get my attention. So here's what she has started to do. Pretend, pretend this is the person I'm talking to right here, right? Here's what she'll do. She'll come up from behind their shoulder like this. She'll go. Listen, when she does the next thing, I'm done, dude, okay? Like, I don't care if it's Jesus I'm talking to. I'm like, yo, Jesus, I got to go, bro, okay? I'm not about to die tonight, okay? I got to go. It's time to go, okay? But some of us, we don't like church foyers because of the spontaneity, because there's nothing. You can't control it. You can't take 30 minutes to send a text. You got to answer immediately. I, I, heard this, I heard this thing a few months ago where there was, a, there was a, a, an interview done with a bunch of young adults. And one of the young adults said she is so accustomed to text messages and to social media that even when she calls to order a pizza, she has to write her script ahead of time just in case the person on the phone asks a question she's not ready for. Like, do you want pepperoni? I don't know. You know, you know. <laughs> I'm gluten-free. You know, like, but th that's the thing, though. That's the world we live in. And here's the thing. I'm guilty of this, too. Like, like for example, I love having people at my house, right? I, I like, like, my wife and I love being hospitable. We love having people at our house. And if I know you're coming, I can be very, very gracious and very welcoming. But my biggest pet peeve is when people show up to my house unannounced. Like, it's my biggest pet peeve. And even though I love people, but there's something about it. Like if I'm sitting at my house and I'm watching SportsCenter or I'm hanging out with my girls or we're watching a movie and, and the doorbell rings, it's like a Pavlov's dog response. Like I can't even help it. Like I get, it's like this rage comes out of me. Like it, and, and I get like it's a Navy SEAL mode. Like I drop to the ground. Like I, I turn all the lights off. And, and my daughter starts running towards the door and like I kick her legs out from under her. I'm like, what are you doing? We don't open doors in this house. That's me, though. And it's even worse if I come to my house and I didn't know you were going to be there. Like, if I come home from a long day at work and there's a car in my driveway, I'm like, oh, here we go. <laughs> what did Lily do? What did my wife do? And what I do is I get there and then what I, I try to avoid when the person turns their, their, turns their head, I look at my wife. I'm like, oh, what is this? I'm tired. What are you doing? But that's how we are, though, because we struggle with control. We struggle with security. If I can't control it, I don't want anything to do with it. Okay? So the first thing we see is we see our need for community. The second thing we see here in this passage is we see the marks of community, the marks of community. And in this passage, here's what he does. The author of Hebrews, he gives us four marks, four marks that should be true of your community if your community is a gospel-centered community. There are four marks, four qualities, four characteristics that should describe your community. So let's go ahead and look at what they are. Look what it says in verses 24 through 25. It says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, 
not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And so in these two verses, he actually gives us four marks, four characteristics that your community should have if it's going to be a biblical, gospel-centered community. The first one, he says, is that you should have a group of people that considers, that considers. It's the first word he uses there. And the word there, considers, in Greek, it's a very interesting word because what it means is, it literally means to behold something. Not just to look at it casually, but to behold something, to, to pay careful attention to something. That's, that's what the word there, consider, means. And according to this passage, if we are going to have gospel community, we need to be a community that is focused not on ourselves, but on the other people in the group. You need to behold them. You need to study them. You need to know them. That's what it says. Now, one of the things that comes to mind when I think of that word consider, one of the, one of the groups of people who are best at considering are single people, okay? Listen, if you're single here today and at any point you've considered dating someone, you know exactly what I mean by considering, okay? Because there's a difference between seeing somebody and beholding somebody, okay? And you're like, oh, who's that? Wait a second. There's no ring on the finger? He seems to like Jesus. He doesn't smell bad. <laughs> he has a job. Right? We, we consider. Like, single people do this all the time. But single people can almost get to, like, it's almost too much nowadays. I, like, at our church, we have a lot of young adults that go to our church, college students and, and young adults. And sometimes I will get... I will get lunch with them, and they'll start, they'll start, they will start telling me about someone that they're interested in. They're like, yeah, and this is their name, and, and this is where they live, and, and they know a whole bunch of personal stuff. They're social and blood type and all this stuff, and I'm like, what the heck? And I'm like, so how was the first day? They're like, oh, we haven't met yet. <laughs> what do you mean you haven't met yet? Oh, I found it out on Facebook. I'm like, you can get arrested for that. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> right? Like 10 years ago, that was considered stalking. Like, what are you doing? Like, go talk to them, right? So, so single people know exactly what I mean when I talk about considering, when I talk about beholding, right? When they talk about placing your mind upon something. That's what we are called to do. Now, here's what's interesting. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus uses the same Greek word consider, but he uses it in a totally different context. Because in this context... It's used in a positive light. We are to consider people for the purpose of growing them. Jesus uses the same Greek word in Matthew chapter 7. And here's what he says. In Matthew 7, Jesus says that when you consider others, you're doing it. Some people can do it wrong because they do it for the purpose of judging them. And then that's in the same context. He brings up that we are looking at someone's speck in their eye and completely ignoring the log in the two by four that's in our eye. The same Greek word there, consider. So some of us are good at considering, but we're not considering the way that this passage is telling us to consider. We don't consider people in order to grow them. We consider people in order to judge them. And so you know all the details about people. You're like, did you see what she wore to church? Who wears that to church? It's not a club. Like, what does she think this is? The offering plate goes by. They didn't give money again. Are they ever going to give? Right? So what a lot of us do is we consider, but we don't consider in order to grow people. We consider in order to judge them. And instead of seeing the two by four in our eye, we're too busy focused on the speck in their eye. Okay? 
So the first thing we're called to do is we are called to consider. The second thing we are called to do is we are called to spur one another on. Now, the word there, spur, uh, spur on, is a very interesting word because it means to irritate. It means to provoke. It means to agitate. So, so get this. We need to be a community. You're not, in, you're not actually in a Christian community unless people can call you up, unless people can provoke you, unless people can confront your sin. And a lot of Christian groups are missing this. It's all about, hey, let's come together and sing songs and everything is great, but don't, don't be talking about what I'm doing wrong. And according to this passage, in order for Christian community to actually happen, actually there's a book, there's every, almost every book that Patrick Lencioni, he's a business guy, writes, says that a, a true team is only a team if they can disagree, if they can call each other out. So, so in a secular world, they're doing it better than we do. Hey, we're all about positive and, and good news. Don't, don't be calling me out on my sin. I celebrate you and you celebrate me, but according to this passage, in order for us to actually have Christian community, we need to spur one another on. We need to provoke, agitate, call each other out. And you know what I think of when I think of that? I think of our siblings, right? If any of you have siblings, you know that there's no one who can provoke you, agitate you, irritate you more than a sibling, right? Why? Because they've considered you, the first step, whether they liked it or not, they considered you, they know you better than anybody else, and say they know exactly which buttons to press. We are to do that, not to annoy each other, but to, he says, we are to spur one another. We are to provoke one another towards love and good deeds. So the first thing we do is consider. The second thing we do is we spur on. The third thing we do, according to the passage, is there are good deeds. Now, the word good deeds is, is a very interesting word because it's the same Greek word that Jesus used last week. And for those of you who were here last week, when Hannibal was preaching on Matthew 5, 13 through 16, he says, we are the salt and light of the world. And he says, make sure to do your good deeds before others so that they may glorify your Father in heaven. The word there, good, is the Greek word kalos, which means something that is attractive, something that is beautiful. So, so we are to do good deeds. Our Christian communities should be marked by deeds that are external in nature. This is something that most Christian groups lack. You don't have the, 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 the group is all about me and all about us. And you don't think about doing good deeds for the people around you. But he's saying that there has to be not just an internal focus, but there also needs to be an external focus if you are to have gospel community. And one of the good things about Rooted, the program that we, the, the, the program that we have, is that one of the weeks, that's what you do. You go out and you, and you serve in the community so that by default from the beginning, your, the DNA is that you are going outward instead of focusing inward, okay? And then lastly, the fourth and final mark is we are to encourage. We are to encourage one another. And all the more as the day approaches, it says. We are to encourage. The word encourage, it means to build someone up. It means to strengthen someone. It means to come alongside someone. The Greek word there is parakletes, which is the same word used to describe the Holy Spirit in in, in John. He says that that the Holy Spirit is our paraclete. He's our encourager. He comes alongside us. He he builds us up. He, He strengthens us. We are to be a community that is building each other up. But in order to do that, we gotta be focused on each other, not on ourselves. It's the only way it works, okay? And so those are the, the four marks, the four marks of Christian community. Now, we've seen the, mark, we've seen the need, right? We, we, the first point was we were looking at the need for community. We've seen the need. And then what we just finished doing is we, we've just finished looking at the marks. But now that we know the need and now that we've seen the marks, the question is, How can we actually do this, right? 
Because here's what's really counterintuitive about this passage. On, on the one hand, this passage does an amazing job of revealing our need for community, right? It does a great job of revealing our need, but then immediately after, it does an even better job of exposing our inadequacy for it. So it reveals our need, and then immediately after, exposes our inadequacy. It encourages us to be in community, and then immediately after, it says, oh, it discourages you by saying, but you actually can't do it. So you're like, well, what do we do? And now I understand that I need community. Now I know what community looks like. But how can we ever hope to be, find or maintain this type of community? And the answer to that question is actually found in the passage. In verses 19 through 23, look what it says here. This is a part that we read right past, and if you don't pay attention, you can actually not see it. But here's what it says in 19 through, through 23. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence... To enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened up for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Now, some of you are saying, wait, 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 wait. What in the world does this have to do with what you just told me? You just spent the last 30 minutes telling me that I need to be in community. Now, you tell me that my solution, the source of my community, is found in verses 19 through 23. But when you read verses 19 through 23, it has nothing to do with community. It's all about blood and bodies and temples and sacrifices. And you're like, what does that have to do with me being in community? And the answer is it has everything to do with it. And here's why. Here's why. Back in the Old Testament, one of the themes that you see all throughout the Old Testament is the theme of exile, is the theme of isolation. And I'll prove it to you. When, when Adam and Eve sin in the garden, well, the first thing that God does is he exiles them. He kicks them out of his presence. He literally isolates them. He, he pushes them away. Then a chapter later, when Cain kills Abel, again, one of the things that God does is he exiles him. He pushes him away. There's more separation, more isolation. Then you go a few chapters later in the book of Genesis, when Jacob sins against his father, one of the things that his father does is he exiles him. He pushes him further away. There's more isolation, more separation. And then even with Israel, with, with Israel, when they sin against God later on with, in the book of Kings and 2 Kings, it says that, that God, one of the things God does is he sends them into exile, into Babylon, into Assyria because of their sin. So what we see is that all throughout the Old Testament, one of the consequences of sin is exile. One of the consequences of sin is isolation. One of the consequences of sin is separation. But every time you see exile in the Old Testament, every time you see separation and isolation in the Old Testament, it is an echo, it is a reverberation of the original exile back in the garden. When Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, God literally puts an angel, an angel with a flaming sword, the Bible says, an angel with a flaming sword that protects the way back into the garden. In other words, in order for anyone to ever get back in, someone was going to have to take that sword. That's the only way we were ever going to get back in the community with God. Someone would have to take that sword. And what we see in Genesis, this is what's beautiful about it. God goes looking for Adam and for Eve, and he says, where are you? He finds them, and we always think that the first death in the Bible is when Cain kills Abel. But the first death in the Bible wasn't when Cain killed Abel. It's when God sacrificed an animal in order to provide covering for the nakedness of Adam and Eve. So think about what happens there. An innocent bystander dies for the covering of their nakedness. 
You see, but here's what God knew. God knew that he was only providing a temporary solution to a permanent problem. At some point, that clothes was going to come off and they were going to be naked again. But God knew what he was doing by doing that. He was foreshadowing. He was pointing us to a greater sacrifice. And that greater sacrifice is not you. It's not me. It's Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen? Amen. So here's 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 what happens. When Jesus shows up on earth... Jesus, he takes the sword that we deserve so that we might get the fellowship that he deserved. At the cross, Jesus, God didn't consider Jesus so that by faith in him, God might consider us. At the cross, God didn't encourage Jesus so that by faith in him, God might encourage us. At the cross, Jesus lost his community so that by faith in him, we might get a community. Come on, church. Let's get get an amen. Come on. That's what Jesus did for you and for me. And once you understand that, once you get it, it changes everything. It says in the passage that now we have been given a confidence. We have been given a sincere heart. So now the word confidence there means fearless. Now I can be fearless when I go into community. I no longer have to be scared. I no longer have to hide. The word sincere there means not imaginary, not fake. So now I can be fearless and not fake because of what Jesus did for me. And when I'm in that community, the reason why I can consider you is because Jesus has already considered me. The reason why I can encourage you is because Jesus has already encouraged me. The reason why I can spur you on and not be scared about offending you is because my identity is not found in you. It's found in the person who died for me. And so I can do community because Jesus took my condemnation. That's what we see. Listen, when you do a cost-benefit analysis of this passage, all the cost is on Jesus and all the benefits are for us. Listen, to the degree that you understand the cost of verses 19 through 23, to that same degree you will embrace the benefits of verses 24 and 25. Listen, once you understand that at the cross Jesus gave you everything you need, then and only then can you give away everything you have. Let me say that again. Once you understand that at the cross Jesus gave you everything you need, then and only then can you give away everything that you have. Listen, to the degree that you find your identity in the work of Christ, to that same degree you will find community in the body of Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you that everything that we get, we don't deserve because Jesus at the cross received what we deserved. At the cross, you treated Jesus the way we deserve so that by faith in him, you might treat us the way he deserved. We thank you for that reality. God, I pray for the people here who have yet to take a step towards community. I pray that today would be the day they do it. That once they understand the source of community is what you've done for us, that they would go out and look for community, not for their sake, but also for the sake of the people who are in that community. Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. amen.